Hello and welcome back to Taos Africa. This time we continue on with Dog of the Bushveld, starting the chapter in the heart of the bush. When the hen pecked Jock on the nose, she gave him a useful lesson in the art of finding out what you want to know without getting into trouble. As he got older, he also learned that there were only certain things which concerned him and which it was necessary for him to know. A young dog begins by thinking he can do everything, go everywhere, know everything. And a hunting dog has to learn that to mind his own business as well as to understand it. Some dogs turn sulky or timid or stupid when they are checked. An intelligent dog with a stout heart will learn little by little to leave other things alone and grow steadily keen on his own work. There was no mistake about Jock's keenness. When I took down the rifle from the wagon, he did not go off into ecstasies or barking as most sporting dogs will do, but would give a quick look up and with an eager little run towards me, give a whimper of joy. Make two or three bounds as if wanting to stretch his muscles and loosen his joints, then shake himself vigorously as though he had just come out of the water with a suppressed woo full of contentment, drop silently into his place at my heels and give his whole attention to his work. He was the best of companions, and through the years that we hunted together, I never tired of watching him. There was always something to learn, something to admire, something to be grateful for, and very often something to laugh at in the way in which we laugh only at those we are fond of. It was the struggle between Jock's intense keenness and his sense of duty that most often raised the laugh. He knew that his place was behind me, but probably he also knew that nine times out of ten he scented or saw the game long before I knew there was anything near, and naturally wanted to be in front or at least abreast of me to show me whatever there was to be seen. He noticed just as surely and as quickly as any human being could any changes in my manner. Nothing escaped him, for his eyes and ears were on the move the whole time. It was impossible for me to look for more than a few seconds in any one direction, or to stop or even to turn my head to listen without being caught by him. His bright brown eyes were everlasting on the watch and on the move. From me to me, the bush, from the bush back to me, when we were after game, and he could scent it or see it, he would keep a foot or two by the side of me as to have a clear view, and when he knew that my manner, that I thought there, were game, there was game nearby, he kept so close up that he would often bump against my heels as I walked, or run right into my legs if I stopped suddenly. Often when stalking buck very quietly and cautiously, thinking only of what it was in front, I'd get quite a start by feeling something bump up against me behind. At these times it was impossible to say anything without risk of scaring the game, and I got into the habit of making signs of my hand which he understood quite well. Sometimes after having cooled up I would be in the act of aiming when he would press up against me. Nothing puts one off as a touch of the un- or the expectation of being dogged when in the act of firing, and I used to get angry with him then but did not breathe a word. I would lower my head, slowly turn around and give him a look. He knew quite well what it meant. Down would go his ears instantly, and he would back away from me a couple of steps, drop his stump of a tail and wag in a feeble, deprecating way, and open his mouth into a sort of foolish laugh. That was his apology. I beg your pardon. It was an accident. I won't do it again. It was quite impossible to be angry with him. He was so keen, and he meant so well. And when he saw me laughing softly at him, he would come up again close to me, cock his tail a few inches higher and wag it a bit faster. There's a deal of expression in a dog's tail. 
will generally tell you his feeling what his feelings are. My friend maintained that when we that was how he knew his old dog was enjoying the joke against the cockerel. That is certainly how I knew that what, what was Jock thinking that once when we lost in the world. It showed me the way back. It is easy enough to lose oneself in the bushveld. The berg stands up some thousands of feet inland on the west, looking as if it had been put there to hold up the high veld, and between the foothills and the sea lies the bushveld, stretching for hundreds of miles north and south. From the height and distance of the berg it looks as flat as the floor, but at many parts it is very much cut up by deep roughs, dongas, sharp rises and depressions and numbers of small cooktures. Still, it has a way of looking flat, because the hills are small and very much alike, and because hill and hollow are covered and hidden mile after mile by small trees of a wonderful sameness. Just near enough to Brent knew from seeing more than a few hundred yards at a time. Most people see no difference in sheep. Most believe that all Chinamen are exactly the same, and so it is with the bushveld. You have to know it first. So far, I had never lost my way out of hunting. The experiences of other men and the warnings from the old hands had made me very careful. We were always hearing of men being lost through leaving the road and following up the game while they were excited without noticing which way they were, went, and how long they had been going. There were no beaten tracks and very few landmarks, so that even experienced hunters went astray sometimes for a few hours or a day or two when the mists of heavy rain came on and nothing could be seen beyond fifty or hundred miles. Nearly everyone who goes hunting in the bushveld gets lost some time or another, generally in the beginning before he has learned to notice things. Some have been lost for many days until they blundered onto a track by accident or were found by a search party. Others have been lost in finding no food or water have died. Others have been killed by lions in only a boot or a coat, or, as it happened in one case that I know of, a ring found inside a lion told what had occurred. Others have been lost and nothing more ever heard of them. There's no feeling quite like that being lost. Helplessness, terror and despair. The horror of it is so great that every beginner has it before him. Everyone has heard of it, thought of it, and dreamed of it, and everyone feels it holding him to the beaten track as the field drowning keeps those who cannot swim to shallow water. That is just in the beginning. Presently, when little excursions, each bolder than the previous, have ended without accident, the fear grows less and confidence develops. Then it is, as a rule, that the accident comes and the lesson is learned, if you are lucky enough to pull through. When the camp is away in the trackless bush, it needs a good man always to find the way home after a couple of hours' chase of its twists and turns and doublings. But when the camp is on, made on a known road, a long wind road that strikes a fair line between two points on the compass, it seems impossible for anyone to be hopelessly lost. The road runs cart east and west, knowing on which side you left it, have only to walk north or south steadily, and you must strike it again. The old hands taught the beginners this, and we were glad to know that it was only a matter of walking for a few hours, more or less, and that in the end we were bound to find the road and strike some camp. Yes, said the old hands, it is simple enough here where you have a road running east and west. There is only one rule to remember. When you have lost your way, don't lose your head. But indeed, 
what is just the one rule you're quite unable to observe. Many stories have been told of men being lost. Many volumes could be filled with them for the trouble of writing down what any hunter will tell you. But no one who has not seen it can realise how the thing may happen. No one would believe the effect that the terror of being lost and the demoralisation which it causes can have on a sane man's senses. If you want to know what a man can persuade himself to believe against the evidence of his senses, even when his real life depends on it and upon holding to the absolute truth, then you should see a man who is lost in the bush. He knows that he left the road on the north side. He loses his bearings. He does not know how long, how fast, or how far he has walked. Yet, if he keeps his head in, he will make it due south and must inevitably strike a road. After going for half an hour and seeing nothing familiar, he begins to feel that he is going in the wrong direction. Something pulls him to face right about, and only a few minutes more of this, and he feels sure he must have crossed the road without noticing it, and therefore that he ought to be going north instead of south, if he ever hopes to ever strike it again. How, you will ask, can a man imagine it possible to cross a big dusty road twenty or thirty feet wide without seeing it? The idea seems absurd, yet they really do believe it. One of the first illusions that occurs to men when they lose their heads is that they have done this, and it is the cause of scores of cases of loss in the bush. The idea that they may have done it is, an, is absurd enough, but a stranger still is the fact that they actually do it. If you cannot understand a man thinking that he had done such a thing, what can you say of a man actually doing it? Impossible, quite impossible, you think. Ah, but it is a fact. Many know it for a fact, and I have witnessed it twice myself. Once in Mashona land, and once on the Delagoa De road, I saw men, tired, haggard, and wide-eyed, staring far in front of men, never looking at the ground, pressing on and on and on, and actually cross well-worn wagon roads, coming from hard of felt into a sandy, well-worn track, and kicking up a cloud of dust as they passed, and utterly blind to the fact that they were walking across the road they had been searching for. In one case for ten hours, and another for three, three days. When we called to them, they had already crossed and were disappearing again into the bush. In both cases, the sound of the human voice and the relief of being found made them collapse. The knees seemed to give way. They could not remain standing. The man who loses his head is really lost. He cannot think, remember, reason, or understand. And the strangest thing of all is that he can often not see properly. He fails to see the th very things that he most wants to see, even when they are as large as life before him. Crossing the road without seeing it is not the only or the most extraordinary example of this sort of thing. We were out hunting once in a mounted party, but to spare a tired horse I went on foot, and to take up my stand in a game run among some thorn trees on the low spur of a hill, while the others made a big circuit to head off a troop of kudu. Among our party there was one who was very nervous, been lost once for six or eight hours, being haunted by the dread of being lost again. His nerve was all gone, and he would not go fifty yards without a companion. In the excitement of shooting and galloping after the kudu, the probably this dread was forgotten for a moment. He himself could not tell how it happened that he became separated, and no one else had noticed him. The strip of wood along the hills in which I was waiting was four or five miles long, but only from one to three hundred yards wide a mere fringe enclosing the little range of Kubjis. 
and between the stems of the tree I could see our camp and wagons in the open about a quarter mile away. Ten or twelve shots faintly heard in the distance told me that others were on the kudu, and knowing the preference of those animals for the bush, I took cover behind a big stump and waited. For over half an hour, however, nothing came towards me, and believing that the game had broken off another way, I was about to return to camp when I heard the tapping of galloping feet a long way off. In a few minutes, the hard thud and occasional ring on the ground told me that it was not the kudu, and soon afterwards I saw a man on its horseback. He was leaning eagerly forward and thumping the exhausted horse of his rifle in his heels to keep up the staggering gallop. I looked about quickly to see what it, what, what it was chasing. That could have slipped past me unnoticed, but there was nothing. Then, thinking there had been an accident and he was coming for help, I stepped out in the open and waited for him to come. I stood quite still, and he galloped past within ten yards of me, so close that he muttered, Get on, you brute, get on! As he thumped away on his poor, tired horse, were perfectly audible. What's up, sportsman? He asked, no, no louder than you would say, it across a tennis court. But the words brought him up, white-faced and terrified, and he half-slid, half-tumbled off the horse, gasping out, I was lost, I was lost. How he had managed to keep within that strip of bush without once getting into the open where he would have seen the line of kupjis to which I had told him, and to Stickle could have seen the wagons and the smoke of the big campfire, he would never explain. I turned him around where he stood, and through the trees showed him the white tents of the wagons and the cattle grazing nearby, but he was too dazed or to understand or explain anything. There are many kinds of men. That particular kind is not the kind they will ever do for felt life. They are for other things than other work. You will laugh at them at times, when the absurdity is greatest and no harm has been done. But see it, see it, and realise the suspense, the strain and the terror. Then, even the funniest incident has another side to it. See it once and recall the worst of endings have just seen, have had just beginnings. See it in the most absurd and farcical circumstances ever known, and laugh, laugh your fool. Laugh for the victim and laugh with him when it's over and safe, but in the end will come the little chilling thought that the strongest, the bravest, and the best have known something of it too, and that even to those who courage holds to the last breath, there may come a moment when the pulse beats a little faster and the judgment is at fault. Buggins, who was with us in the first season, was no hunter, but he was a good shot and not a bad fellow. In his case, there was no tragedy. There was much laughed and, to me, wonderful revelation. He showed us, as in a play, how you could be lost, and how you can walk forever in one circle, and as though drawn to a centre by magnetic force, and how you could, as misseen things in the bush, if they do not move. We'd outspanned and flat covered with close grass, about two, two feet high and a shady flat top thorn trees. The wagons, four number, were drawn up a few yards off the road to, to abreast. The grass was sweet and plentiful, the day was hot and still, and as we had a very long early morning trick, there was not much inclination to move. The cattle stood in soon and filled themselves and lay down to sleep. The boys did the same, and we, when breakfast was over, got into the shade of the wagons, some to sleep and others to smoke. Buggins, that was his pet name, was a passenger returned to England, home and beauty, that is to say, literally, to a comfortable home and sisters and a rich, indulgent father, 
after having sought his fortune unsuccessfully on the goldfields for fully four months. Buggins was good-natured, unselfish, and credulous, but he had one fault. He yapped. He talked unto our heads, Buzz. He used to sleep contentedly in a rumpled tarpaul and all through the night tricks, and come out fresh up as a daisy, and full of accumulated chat as the morning outspanned, just when we, unless work or sport called for us, were wanting to get some sleep. We knew well enough what to expect, sir. Oh, after breakfast, Jimmy, who understood Buggins well, told him pleasantly that he could sleep, shoot, or shut up. To shut up was impossible, and to sleep again without a rest, difficult, even for Buggins. So with a good-natured laugh, he took the shotgun, saying that he would potter around for a bit and give us a treat. Well, he did. We had outspanned on the edge of an open space in the thorn bush. There were plenty of them to be found in the bushveld. Spaces a few hundred yards in diameter, like open parkland, where not a single tree breaks the expanse of wavy yellow grass. The wagons with their grayish tents and buck sows and dusty woodwork stood in the fringe of the trees, where this little arena touched the road and into its sallied buggins, gently drawn, drawn by the benevolent purpose of it giving us a treat. What he hoped to find in the open on that sweltering day he could only tell. We knew that no living thing but lizards would be out of the shade just then, but we wanted to find him and pull it harmless to him and us. It had been gone for more than half an hour when we heard a shot, and a few minutes later Jimmy's voice aroused us. What the dickens is Buggins doing? He asked in a tone so puzzled and interested that we all turned to watch that sportsman. According to Jimmy, he had been walking about in a ratted grave for some time on the far side of the open ground, going from the one end to the other and then back again disappearing for a few minutes in the bush and reappearing again to again manoeuvre in the open in loops and circles, angles and straight lines. Now he was walking about at a smart pace, looking from side to side, apparently searching for something. We could see the whole thing or clearly as you could see a cricket field from the railings. The wagon formed part of the boundary, but we could see no explanation to explain Buggins' manoeuvres. Next we saw him face the thorns opposite Raised his gun very deliberately and fired into the tops of the trees. Green pigeons, said Jimmy firmly, firmly. And we all agreed that Buggins was after specimens for suffering. But either our guess was wrong or his aim was bad, for after standing dead still for a minute, he resumed his vigorous walk. But this time Buggins fairly fascinated us. Even the Kaffirs had roused each other and were watching him. Away he went at once off to our left, and there he repeated the performance but again made no attempt to pick up anything and showed no further interest in whatever it was he had fired at, but turned right about face and walked across the open ground in our direction until he was only a couple of hundred yards away. Then there he stopped and began to look about him and, making off some few yards in another direction, climbed onto a far-sized anthill heap five or six feet high and, balancing himself cautiously on this, he deliberately fired off both barrels in quick succession. Then the same idea struck us all together, and Buggins is lost, came from several choking of laughter. <laughs> Jimmy got up and stepping out into the open beside the wagons called, Say, Buggins, what in the thunder are you up to? To see Buggins slide off the ant heap and shuffle shamefacedly back to the wagon before a gallery of four white men and a lot of kaffirs all cracking and crying of laughter was a sight never to be forgotten. I do not want to get lost and be eaten alive, even look ridiculous. So I began very carefully, 
glance back regularly to see what the track and trees and rocks and trees looked like from the other side, carefully noted which side of the road I had turned off, and always kept my eye on the sun. But day after day and month after month went by without accident or serious difficulty, then the same old thing happened. Familiarity bred contempt, and I got the beginner's complaint. Conceit fever, just as others did. Thought I was a rather fine fellow, not like other chaps who always had doubts and difficulties in finding their way back, but something exceptional with the real instinct in me which hunters, natives, and many animals are supposed to have. Thought, in fact, I could not get lost. So each day I went further and more boldly off the road, and grew more confident and careless. The very last thing that would have occurred to me on this particular day was that there was any chance of me being lost or any need to take note of where we went. For many weeks we had been hunting in exactly the same sort of country, but not, of course, in the same part, and the truth is I did not give the matter of a thought at all, but went ahead as one does of the things that are done every day as a matter of habit. And that is the end of the chapter, The Heart of the Bush. I thank you for sitting with me as we ex- explored further the Jock of the Bush felt. I hope to see you again for the chapter Lost in the Felt.